before we begin, I have a few things to say. First, share this show with everyone you know and make sure they share it with everyone they know. Second, send me your questions and feedback at RaulGuerreroJr95 at gmail.com. And third, support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypalme slash Raul Guerrero Jr. I'm Raul Guerrero, and welcome, my dystoblicans, to the Dystopian Republic. Our story for today begins on the morning of June 29th, 2002. Sunny skies loomed over a picnic facility that was one of Bromelia's go-tos for summer fun, Black Crow Springs. Nestled in the southern nest of the Carbonico Mountains, it wasn't far from Pais del Carbone's borders with La Cordillera del Est and La Gran Lanuda. The Bermelian People's Party took over the springs with its free market, capitalist advocacy, and calls for the upholding of traditional values hewed in the red dirt of their party's mascot, the native Aroxy Cougar. They pulled out all the stops in one-upping the picnic their united Bromelian appeal rivals also held that day, but at the Paisley Gardens, a theme park in Cameliaburg, Costa della Grande. Their picnic was a biennial tradition where party leaders and their families build community and have fun with the specific aim to unite the party's center-right, right-wing, and far-right factions led by Roosevelt Pasmino Sr., Joby Merlo Sr., and Romulo Bicuña, respectively. And speaking of Roosevelt, he was driving up the mountains' winding roads in his GS with Jade, Josefa, and their friend Crystal Canella riding him back. At that time, the three were closer than a lot of sisters, not a leaf of ill will anywhere in sight. They first saw one another when the 2001-2002 school year got on the road. Jade and Josefa's dissimilar dispositions strongly put them at odds with each other. That was until Crystal entered the picture as the puzzle piece they both fitted with. Elating like a bean about to jump, Jade found sitting relatively still to be a real chore. As a child, 
she aspired to be a star of popular culture. Her clothes as many hues, and the sugar in her brain, heart, and tongue reflected that candied eloquence, albeit in a manner appropriate for a day in the woods. That eloquence became the yarn ball Josefa poked her fun and shook her laughter at. In her early years, she wanted to be a scientist when she grew up. Her self-effacing dress and the feathers in her vocal tract embodied her churlish meekness that sought to make sure her worst humiliation never happens again. She and Jade traded a few insults pertaining to how they looked and what they were interested in, taking them to slaps and hair pulls that turned waspish and intemperate. Their fighting upset Crystal, who was caught in the middle, into trying to break them up to surprisingly negligible avail. Crystal was looking forward to actually having friends her age to go picnicking with. At this stage in her life, she made it her sincere strive to be the president of Bromelia. Her foresty button-down chinos and hiking boots conveyed the flimsy scales her blindfolded soul spared no effort in perfectly balancing. Jade and Josefa's persistent catfight irked Roosevelt into pulling to the side of the road, using his harsh voice to take Jade and Josefa out for an austere talking to. From in the car, Crystal watched him maintain his cool and the girls lose every bit of theirs, blaming the other for causing the fight to start. Roosevelt exasperatedly shutted Jade and Josefa up and grabbed their wrists. His raised voice jolted them quiet as acutely as a lightning strike that narrowly missed them. He threatened to ground Jade for a week and let Aleja know about Josefa's bad behavior. His threats got the girls kneeling their sorries to him there and then. He accepted their apologies, telling them to get back in the car and not say a word. As the springs drew closer, Crystal lightly grasped Jade and Josefa's hands. Her soft, warm touch eased their quivering axons and cooled their post-discipline stress. Crystal's attentive grin mended the fence of endearment. Their fight shot a big hole through. Her effectiveness stopped Roosevelt from stepping in and having to pull over again. It amazed him how great Crystal was at keeping Jade and Josefa on friendly terms. Her ability to mediate was something about her that Roosevelt deeply respected. If only his relations with Joby and Romulo were as easy on the ear. He drove his car into the springs, parking in the space furthest from the exit. Crystal asked him 
if she could have a minute alone with Jade and Josefa. Roosevelt granted that request, telling them not to take too long as he walked off. Her unyielding, dowered hold engulfed Jade and Josefa in her intimacy's influence. Crystal viewed the world as a jungle where every pack was running wild and that the strongest ones will inevitably come out ahead. She regarded herself and her friends as being one of those powerfully built packs, binding herself to not letting it break in half or thirds. Well-to-do picnickers crowded up the springs turned makeshift funfair day camp. Roosevelt and the other adults went for the full open beer and wine bar. His girls and the other kids headed for the fair and camp attractions. That was where Crystal, Jade, and Josefa ran into Lydia, Picuña, Mavis, Darua, and Nigella Infante to their dismay. Lydia asked them how their loser buttholes were doing asking Crystal if she's back to spy on behalf of her commie rats. Mavis asked Jade if she was going to bleed everyone's ears out with another one of her poopy songs about free love and diversity. And Nigella asked Josefa if she's still sucking her friends' cultural Bolshevist eggs. The insults, while off-putting and anger-inducing, were nothing new for either Crystal, Jade, or Josefa. They've been going at it, hammers and tongs, with Lydia, Mavis, and Nigella since they first played and learned in preparation for the fourth grade. The year where their schooling began started in 1997 and ended in 1998. That was the nation's first official school year since the Yellow Cross's fall from power. But even with that holding true, there was still this fervor that the Yellow Cross would one day rise again. A zeal, some who sided with the regime clandestinely instilled in their sons and daughters in hopes that their generation restores it to life. The three-on-three stare-down was interrupted by the intercom toning on. Kaisen and Shauna announced that the sign-up sheets for the annual People Party Games were now open. She encouraged everyone who was anyone to sign up and bring their A-game, adding that the trio that comes out on top will win $300, platinum medals, munificent gift cards, and their picture on the wall of fame. Trading narrowed eyes, the trios saw the games as their chance to stick it to the three they're looking at once and for all. It was the sort of finality to their rivalry they've waited a year to come upon. The games committed itself to being the ultimate test of brawn and brain for kids between the ages of 4 and 10. A multitudinous clump of trios scrambled to get their names on the sign-up sheets. It took 
next to no time for the sheets to fill with names in groups of three. By the time it was the trio's turns to sign, the number of available slots fell to one. That fact's impact had the other trios crowding around the six girls. Their rivalry being common knowledge, their fellow boys and girls knew for sure the sides they were on. The girls stared into the cup of pens and unfilled slot and charged. An abrasive tussle of hair pulls, scratches, girly slaps, and catty kicks ensued, rolling them in the dirt, thinly coating their clothes in its dust, ripping hairs out of their skulls, and scoring and marking up their faces, necks, arms, hands, legs, and feet. All the while, the other kids initially egged them on, but then chose to break them up, seeing how relentless the fight had become. The girls they chose to restrain were from the side opposite to their own. Their choices offended their counterparts across the aisle and got themselves spited as well. The two sides were an impulse away from going into battle when Kaisen, Shauna, and their employees scornfully and aggressively dispersed everyone. They forcefully brought the six girls' persisting urges to fight under some degree of control, buying their time to allow them to get their tempers back. Shauna congratulated the kids for just getting the games canceled, adding that all the fun they looked forward to will now be shut down, thanks to their stupidity. Kaisen warned the kids, taking exception to the cancellation, that he'll call the police if they don't calmly go back to the dining area within the next two minutes. His warning scared the kids into shutting up and doing what they were ordered. Too tired and beat up, the girls hardly resisted the workers escorting them away. Even with the fight now being over, tensions between the two trios remained very high. As that fracas was going down, relations weren't much better over where the adults took shots, tasted wine, played cards, ate food, and talked politics. The cliques that developed comprised entirely of those from either the center-right Brumel Square Alliance, right-wing Caucus for the Republic, and far-right National Identity Union. The factions integrated only if they absolutely had to, like what Roosevelt, Joby, and Romulo felt compelled to do, eating and drinking with few words to say. They were together for the purpose of candidate selections for the upcoming midterm elections, a matter they were moments removed from finishing to their discontent. The list they came up with was a who's who of where the People's Party was at. It evenly split the number of candidates 
each faction got to make sure that no group had power over the other. Roosevelt felt physically ill at all the ex-Yellow Crossers Romulo was able to pick. Romulo was bent out of shape over the ex-United Appealers Roosevelt comprised his third of, and Joby was down in the mouth due to his failure to pack the list with party loyalists and operatives. He came into the selection wanting 8 out of every 10 picks, and for Roosevelt and Romulo to each have one, a want that was swiftly thrown out. That caused the other men to demand that their factions be dominant, going so far as to threaten him and one another with primary challengers. Joby's rationale was that him having the supermajority would show voters that the party was unashamed of its conservatism and capable of taming its demagogues. He worried that Roosevelt would make the party look too submissive to liberal pressure and that Romulo would rub the stink of Gregorio Jr.'s fascism all over the party's image. But in the fullness of time, the three-way compromise was the best Joby could do. Freddy children and displeased workers came flooding into the dining area, tenter-hooking the parents and barging in on Joby's sit-down with Roosevelt and Romulo. The latter two were approached and told by two workers that their girls were in serious trouble for fighting and that they had to pick them up in their office and leave. In that office, Crystal kept her face strong as Jade and Josefa's were anything but dreading the firm hands that were coming for them. Jade was sure Roosevelt would beat her behind for humiliating him in front of his colleagues. Josefa had a horror of Aleja reading and beating into her right axe of an agonizing quality. Crystal rested assured that her mother Rhonda would ride with her to an upper hand or die trying. Close by, Lydia firmly and wickedly had Mavis and Nigella by their jaws and cheeks. She dragged their angers to the bottom of her Cimmerian lake of grinding axes and picking bones, turning them to the capsules in their itty-bitty purses. Immersed in computerized paperwork, Kyson had a few words for the girls. He put stress on how badly he and Shauna want to be the ones raising the six of them, saying that unruly little b-words like them deserve to be shown the fist of respect and discipline. Crystal asked him if his child-abusing Heine showed Glenda those fists. Kyson furiously slammed his desk and menacingly towered over her, startling both her friends and foes. He waspishly asked her what she just said, getting her to tell him that he hurt her. 
This year's picnic being her third, Crystal saw Kaisen and Shauna talk to and order Glenda around as if she was a pooch that ruined everything it touched. She described and discerned the two-on-one clashes they'd run into at every turn, coming to a head when the two violently beat the one in a squabble that turned ugly. The head the clashes came to was the last time Crystal saw Glenda. That piqued her into not taking back any part of what Kaisen demanded her to take back. Crystal's heart lost no ounce of its stoutness, having dealt with people like him and his wife many times before, and seeing Rhonda daringly do likewise. That still didn't make Jade or Josefa any less fearful for her well-being. While that was happening, Lydia and her crew stuffed their mouths with capsules, sucking and moving them around their gums and teeth as if they were jawbreakers. Their saliva thinned out the capsules' membranes, unveiling a yellow, flower-like powder. Lydia was in her zone as Mavis shaked nervously and Nigella hesitantly followed along. They stood from their seats and stealthily approached their rivals, priming their mouthfuls of powder like flowers about to pop out their blooms. The three screamed out for Crystal, Jade, and Josefa, jolting them to abruptly look back at them. Lydia stood and Mavis and Nigella squatted to their faces' levels and blew their flowery mists right into their eye sockets as explosively as they could. The powder perforated crystal jade and Josefa's optic orbs, muscles, and bones faster than hot iron shards at freeway speeds. Their screams maxed out volumes as well as the seated tumbles they took underlined the pains acidically burning their receptors. Lightning fast blinks and hand rubs helped the girls recover their sights in a flash. The dashes for the outdoors their attackers made disintegrated their self-restraints finer than talcum powder. They gave chase before Kaisen could even try to stop them, urging him to request that Shauna and their workers help him get the six girls. Roosevelt and Romulo were feet from stepping into the office when they overheard Kaisen's call for help in apprehending the girls. The workers escorting them suddenly veered away from the office and toward the nearby woods, outraging them into running where they ran. That chase maddened Shauna into calling off the picnic completely, telling guests to shove off before they get their butts jailed for trespassing. Everyone 
But Roosevelt, Romulo, and Joby heeded her threat, departing like bats out of hell. The three who remained raced to get to the girls before the staff did. Lydia, Mavis, and Nigella ran down a hidden, winding, hiking trail as Crystal, Jade, and Josefa were right on their tails. The eyes their mistings caused their pursuers to have were inflamed, bloodshot, and folded over by pus-like yellow lids. They led them through the trail's lines, apexes, bends, and curves. Then Lydia continued straight while Mavis suddenly went left and Nigella sharply turned right. Their runs out of the trail got Josefa to keep running after Lydia, Crystal to trail Mavis's heels, and Jade to follow Nigella's every step into a sequestered, dense growth. The girls being pursued fastivated the sights of their chasers, disorientating them in a damp clutter that was made even more of a shambles of by a recent storm. That loss Crystal and her friends were at didn't stop them from pressing onward in their pursuit of making Lydia and company pay for trying to blind them. Wading through the debris, a hitting thought stopped Jade in her tracks, sounding the alarm to the restful wrongness of her surroundings. Her second sight prepared her for the sneak attack Nigella would attempt, rolling them both like pigs in the clayish mud. They mutually mounted punches, raked eyeballs, held chokes, spiked sciatics, overstretched lips, and smeared mire. Neither girl had a leg over the other in terms of strength, agility, weight, or height, locking them in a brawl that kept going and going. The fuel that produced Jade's fighting was her unbridled will to get even with Nigella for putting the hurt on her sister Ophelia for the crime of being a Pasmino. That hurt betided during a quiet, warm afternoon the Sunday before. In peace, Ophelia drew with chalk adorable poodles on a schoolyard's asphalt, a sight Nigella sinfully beheld. Nigella stepped forward and rubbed her feet all over Ophelia's drawings, smearing them away. The hilarities she fell into sunk Ophelia into a whiny displeasure equally far down. Ophelia called Nigella out for ruining the poodles she spent all day drawing and for finding it hilarious. Her whining got Nigella to pretend to be sorry, exploiting her kindergarten naivete by hugging her and redrawing the poodles she ruined. Then she instructed Ophelia to shut her eyes and turn her back to her, insisting that she had a surprise far superior to the poodles she redrew. That surprise was Nigella body-slamming Ophelia and rubbing her face against the drawings like a cloth towel.
the rubs kept going until Jade came to Ophelia's rescue, scaring Nigella into running away, laughing. Ophelia's crying and frightened hug had Jade's rage hanging by the thread that was her undying refusal to expose her little sister to any further violence. The rage keeping Jade's blood at a boil also seethed the cells in Nigella's veins, bubbling and turning to vapor thanks to an ejection that rendered her housebound. Three weeks ago, Jade dramatically sang a work that grieved at cross-purposes with the old ways that Bermelian society went back to as she practiced her cooking of a ricotta cheese pie for an upcoming exam. She took a big sip of water when Nigella muscled in on her with a smack to her face with a heavy bag of flour. That thumping mess spleened Jade into spitting her sip onto Nigella's face and into her mouth, eye sockets, and nostrils. Nigella ran away in fear of catching the flu Jade was still sick with, and to her misfortune, that fear would turn out to be justified as she would come down with Jade's flu days later, hitting her very hard until that day next week. Her temperature soared to 103, tinting her body a salmon's pink. She coughed ceaselessly for hours on end, expelling her pus-thick mucus and saliva at speeds that broke necks. Sharp aches from her brain to her dorsum nerves stung every move she made, keeping her up at night despite being too tired to do anything. Back here and now, Jade and Nigella fraudily locked horns even when their staying powers dried up, keeling them over to puffing and blowing stupors. Their states of stupefaction reduced by half when Lydia answered Josefa's screams for help with a laugh that emitted a malicious and spiteful effluvium. Jade hurried her hands and knees toward Josefa's screams, jump-starting Nigella's rush to get to Lydia before she did. Natural stones laid the form of a circular dip that was formerly a swimming hole. At its base, Lydia had Josefa in an arm trap that pierced its fangs into her carotid artery. Inky azure lesions doused Josefa in their brutal, awful looks, yet spotted Lydia no less painfully or greatly than a couple strikes that slipped through the cracks. Lydia silently hummed a tune that constricted her indignation in its binds. Her sleeper sapped Josefa's strength just shy of putting her out cold. She felt direly affronted by her tenacious struggling and insistence on returning tit for tat. Unlike Jade or Crystal, Lydia did have a profusion of love for Josefa. Her love was a fellow feeling based on the mortification that flagged in a scarlet 
that starred the black middle stripe between its upper and lower ones. Romulo was conceived from a one-night stand Alexis Jr. had with his housegirl Hiomada. The bits of Alexis that Lydia and Josefa saw in themselves and each other laid their bonds first stone. Cheek by Joel, they got lost in the imaged and typed stars, planets, moons, and asteroids. The two had a ball conducting an experiment that sought to find out what brand of bubblegum blew the biggest bubble and why. Outside of science, they enjoyed playing chess, squash, and baking cakes and cookies at Lydia's house. Half of the price Josefa paid to keep her friendship with Lydia alive came in the form of Aleja giving rise to frequent arguments, lectures on how the Bacunas were bad news, and barrages of insults that punched and kicked her acumen in like a punching bag. The other half was Romulo confiding in her and Lydia, the red wasp they were bred from, and that it's their life's errand to vanquish its radical left shadow. He advised them that to blaspheme and derelict that task was to commit treachery against their nation's identity. But Josefa would soon do just that, thanks in all respects to Lydia being the one who made her worst humiliation happen. On the first April Fools of the second millennium, Lydia had Josefa strip out of her lantern blouse, twilled vest, silk skirt, cotton panties, and lace socks in a dark room she couldn't see any part of. She assured her that she was going to get naked also, intending to streak by Romulo and his wife, Everell, when they got home. Not a minute after saying that, Lydia flicked on all the lights, letting a circling onrush of finger-pointing laughs fall on Josefa, affrighting her into a fetally positioned fit of bellowing wails, her arms covering her chest and the area between her legs. That moment stripped Josefa's resisting of its sanity, driving Lydia to combat it by streeling her bellicosely into her gloom, made her call it quits on the fight she put up. With Josefa now bent to her will, Lydia instructed Mavis and Nigella to bring Crystal and Jade to her so that they could wipe their spirits off the map. The response that came to her was Jade beating Nigella to the hole's lowest part. Their dead tiredness gave Lydia the feeling that something wasn't right. Her streeling clamped to a firm standstill, demanding Mavis to bring Crystal at once. The answer her order got came in a form that muted her vocal cords and blued her nerves with cold. An unscathed crystal came on down with a brutalized and petrified Mavis, bounded by her machine-tight clutch and the pain 
from the battering she underwent. Seeing Lydia and Nigella, Mavis apprehensively squealed for their help. The pity she aroused in Lydia caused Crystal to derisively ask her if she wasn't so tough now. Her hubris melting, Lydia threatened to choke Josepa out if Crystal didn't let Mavis go. Crystal reciprocated that threat by presenting her clawed hands' clear nails. Lydia shiveringly shook her head and told her that she wouldn't friggin' dare. Though the claw Crystal made was Josefa's grounds for hope, it also unpleasantly shocked Jade, showing her a side she hadn't seen. The talk she and Josefa had with Crystal never gave them any reason to believe that her mind had any dark corners. Crystal restated her demand for Lydia to unhand Josefa, saying she'll drop Mavis if she does. Nigella begged Lydia not to trust Crystal because she'll hurt Mavis either way. A slight loosening of the clutch handed Josefa the wiggle room to lift Lydia over her head, concussing her by slamming her skullcap flat on the rocks. The rocks Josefa smacked onto didn't lessen the rest her escape clamped her in. Lydia spent the next five seconds shutting out the flashing stars blurring her vision. The needle points inwardly curving out Crystal's nail beds aroused in her aretamanfine ardor. She surgically dug her nails into the right end of Mavis's forehead, shooting the distress in Lydia, Nigella, and Jade kilometers above the roof it darted through. Mavis squalled in a cataclysmic frenzy as Crystal's nails powered across the skin above her right eyebrow. Her blood plentifully poured out of her head and down her face, rendering Nigella powerless to intervene, activating the Scheidenfreude in Josefa, an appalling jade in such a way that her conscience forces her to beseech Crystal to stop cutting Mavis. Crystal loudly explained to Jade that what she's doing was how to get bullies to stop messing with her. She reminded her of the talk they had in the car, stringently asking her if she already forgot. Jade assured her ad nauseum that she remembered the talk from beginning to end. Her spareless effort had Crystal wondering why she wasn't relishing her actions the way Josefa was taking delight in them. Even though Jade found Mavis deplorable, her heart couldn't take seeing her be in the agony that she was in. Jade miserably pleaded with Crystal not to torture Mavis anymore. Inflamed by her begging, Crystal sneered at her for being a spineless milksop, feeling that feeble cowardice emit out of Mavis. Jade was too appalled to even take offense to her insult, asking 
timidly if Rhonda would condone her torturous cutting. In unbending defiance, Crystal ranted that her mom would receive her torture favorably, and her adult friend would unreservedly be besotted with it. Crystal went on with incising her nails across the center of Mavis's forehead, across her other eyebrow, and out at the edge of her right hairline. Throughout that continuation, her mind's eye saw her adult friend's facial vehemence, imposing posture, and dapper dress. Watching Mavis's facial rose beige tint an iron-scented masking crimson, Jade and Lydia yelled out her name and for help. Their shouts speedily led Romulo, Roosevelt, and Joby right to them, to Crystal's trepidatiousness, preventing her from disemboweling Mavis. The crimson mask Mavis wore incensed Romulo into sprinting his punch into Crystal's nose, slamming her into a bell-rung sorrow. His attack and subsequent pinning down of her infuriated Roosevelt into raucously tackling him off of her. The two men incessantly traded strikes the way mixed martial artists would. Joby's attempt to break them up flopped him off his feet and punched out his lights. Even when Kaisen, Shauna, and their workers stepped in, breaking Romulo and Roosevelt up remained an uphill battle due to the decades of dormant rage blowing out of the two men in one go, angers with enormously personal roots. But as shocking as the day's events would be to the media, they would be overshadowed by a far more harrowing one in Cameliaburg. In either case, those events underscored the tribalisms that the nation had relapsed on, and as fate would have it, the years-long chain of events that led the girls into their twenties would turn out to be just another product of that relapse. And that was a day at the Springs. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero, and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of The Dystopian Republic. <laughs>